up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today's July 14th, 2020. Today's podcast and interview with Dr. Ron Paul is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out, and then we're going to get on with the show today. First and foremost are my exclusive gold and silver dealers at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver. Why? Because A, they support the podcast, but also because they do a great job. I have been happy to ditch my other gold and silver suppliers for JM Bullion. They have been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They always turn around my orders very quickly. They have a great stock. Uh, They ship their products quickly. I've never had any issues with them, and I like doing business with JM Bullion a lot. QTR podcast listeners have their own dedicated saleswoman at JM Bullion, the lovely Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. If you want to shoot her an email, tell her you're a listener, tell her you want free shipping, tell her you're a fan of the QTR podcast, and see if she can help you get set up with whatever your gold and silver bullion needs are. Because as we'll discuss today, central banks are out of control, so who the hell knows where things are going to go with our fiat fiasco across the globe. Best to just own gold and silver. That's what I think. That's, uh, you know, not investment advice, but that's what I like to own. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Steam Room is probably the best product out there today for tracking money coming into the illiquid options market. When you want to track Steam, you want to track where the big players are putting their money, the Steam Room is the place to get those notifications. You can hopefully get ahead of the rest of the market who isn't paying attention as you are watching where the big money is coming in. And folks, that big money moves around for a reason. When you see huge sweeps coming into the option market, that's usually for a reason. Those things don't happen just as coincidences most of the time. I've been watching the options market long enough to understand that. There's no better developed and no aesthetically pleasing platform to track this type of flow than the Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus Steam Room. It is a wonderful piece of software. Charlie Bathgate was on last week talking about how they are revamping it. Um, They've been working on it for a decade now. These guys are experts in this type of tape reading. So check out the Sanglucci Steam Room. The link to that is in my podcast description. Tell Lucci that QTR sent you and you want a discount. It's the type of product that if you don't use it like a herb, it might pay for itself relatively quickly. Speaking of which, this podcast is also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at the Trader's Path. That I would I would normally say the Trader's Path is a brand new day trading service, but I just noticed on Pete's Twitter the other day that they are celebrating their one year anniversary, which is awesome. They have been partners with the podcast since they started. They have been patrons of the podcast. When I first talked to Pete, it was last year. He was getting the service ready to go up and running. And things have been going great for him. He owes the QTR podcast listeners a debt of gratitude for that. And we owe him a debt of gratitude for his continued support. The Trader's Path is an online day trading service. They provide daily watch lists. They provide a live stream every day. They provide investor education. And best of all, they provide a community of traders that like to share ideas and help each other out on the daily. So if you're a day trader, if you're spending all day at the computer, especially now with the markets going haywire, it's a great time to have a good group of honest, trustworthy people around you. 
Pete started his service specifically because he didn't like the other day trading services that he was being a part of. He thought that they were front-running his trades. He thought they didn't give a shit about him. They only wanted his money. So he wanted to start a day trading service that was different, one that actually cared for its community. And that's what the Trader's Path is. So happy one-year anniversary to the Trader's Path and to my brother Pete over there at the Trader's Path. The link to his service is in the podcast description. I gar- I'm giving you a guarantee right now. You tell Pete you're a QTR podcast listener. He's going to give you a discount. He's going to hook you up. So tell Pete Hedgetus that I sent you and check out my friends over at the Trader's Path. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, <clears throat> excuse me, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti just had a birthday. Happy birthday to you, brother Russ Valenti. And also my friend Crichton Titus and some new patrons that have recently signed up. My homeboy Jonathan Nybin, Matthew Smith, my friend Jill, thank you very much for signing up. Susan, Charles Zivkinev, Phantom Dills, thank you guys for becoming patrons and supporting the podcast. Also want to shout out Alan Weber. Uh, Simon Thorinson, my buddy Bobby Brooks, thank you brother, and some people that have been with me for a while like Sin, and uh, my buddy Garth Palmer, thank you very much, Louis J. Desi Jr., what is going on, thank you for your continued support, my friend William Hild, and my buddy Baz Trading, thank you so much, you guys make interviews like today's awesome interview possible. For those new to the podcast, we have a two-drink minimum. I'm not an investment advisor. None of this is an investment or life advice. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to carry on any further. All right, I am uh, honored to have the man that got me into libertarian thinking uh, wow, more than a decade ago now, Dr. Ron Paul with me on the line. Dr. Paul, of course, is a former two-time presidential candidate, uh, former Republican congressman from Texas, and he's currently the chairman of the Ron Paul Institute and host of one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Ron Paul Liberty Report. How are you today, Dr. Paul? Doing fine, Chris. Nice to be with you. Thank you uh, for your time today. The last time we spoke was back in January, and things have changed significantly since then, to say the least. <laughs> right, that's for sure. I wanted to uh, get your take not only as a physician and, and as a libertarian, um, but also as somebody that opines on the economy. And rather than dive into the virus immediately, I would love to know your reaction to our central, you know, to our central bank's actions here over the last three months under the guise of providing stimulus and dealing with this virus. Well, it's it's to be expected. Uh, you know, the Fed's been around for a long time. They've had their ups and downs, but each uh, time we go through another cycle, it always gets worse. It requires more spending and more monetary inflation to get things going again. Of course, they're having trouble getting it going again. But I, you know, I think the whole thing in the beginning of this year was evident that the market wasn't holding up. And, uh, of course, it was compounded, you know, with uh, coronavirus. But in this short period of time, the last several months, uh, you know, the spending and the deficits have just gone crazy, uh, over $3 trillion of extra money. But it just happens that the balance sheet for the Federal Reserve went up $3 trillion. So they monetized this. And uh, this is the uh, 
the theories of modern uh, modern monetary theory, as well as uh, Bernanke and the rest of them. You know, Bernanke made that famous statement: "Well, if need be, there'll never be deflation. We'll drop the money out of helicopters if we need to." And this go around, they've more or less had to do that. Uh, they work closely, you know, with Treasury. Uh, they do bail out banks and and big businesses and extend credit and have all those kind of shenanigans that go on. But also, the cash checks went out. The checks went out to to the point where billions of dollars actually go to the wrong people, people that have died and dead cats and everything else. So uh, that that just uh, can't last uh, forever. It's amazing it's lasted this long. But all they can do now is continue to do what they've been doing. Uh, they cannot allow interest rates to go up. They tried to shrink their balance sheet uh, just for a short period of time, and that was causing the markets to go down sharply. So they're not going to shrink the balance sheet. Uh, they're not going to allow interest rates to go up. They're going to make everything for free until the point reaches where people lose confidence in the dollar as a reserve currency or even a currency that people want to hold it all. And I think we're approaching that quickly. Yeah, one of the things I wonder about is what the straw is going to be that finally breaks the camel's back for this Keynesian experiment that we're on now. And I have to tell you, Dr. Paul, I never felt like more of a chump cutting my tax check than I did this year when I think about the fact that the government, you know, brings in three trillion to four trillion dollars in tax revenue yearly. And here they have just gone out and printed that amount over the last three months. And, you know, I dutifully send away my check because I want to do the you know, I want to abide by the law and be a tax paying citizen. But uh, at some point, do you think that this starts to uh, not make sense to the average person, Dr. Paul? That's, that's right. And because government comes to the rescue and even though they say, well, the last check is going to be, you know, next week or so, uh, the people are are very dependent. And I think the average person now, uh, in a way, it's looking at the, the tax system is uh, people won't pay their rent. Uh, they can't pay it, and they don't get another job. They don't liquidize debt. They don't make the corrections, and the economy keeps going. So for three months now, uh, it's tided people over. People get their check, and they make their payment on their rent, and, and now we're coming up to another deadline. And, you know, the, the big argument, I, I get it's sort of a, a cynical type of kick out of the whole thing because they've already agreed – that it, uh, on another trillion dollars, you know, appropriated by the Congress, and the uh, the even the Republicans in the Congress right now are fussing about how to spend that trillion dollars. Not that we should do it or not, right. but uh, what it what it should be what it should be spent on. But the con but then you need to still have conservatives versus liberals. So the Republicans argue a little bit with the Democrats and Pelosi because Pelosi wants. I don't know how much, but she says she wants two trillion dollars. So there's a little bit of an argument, and uh, it's it's going to be whatever is necessary to calm the markets down. I think the number one driving force for all that they do is the symbolism of a of a of a stock market that continues to go up and never makes the corrections of any significance uh, because 
it's, it's done it. But eventually it's going to. Eventually people won't come back in. And, uh, you know, I, it reminds me a little bit of what happened in 19, ended in the 1980s under Japan. They kept they, they kept saying, it'll never correct. And I think it was up to like, uh, Nikai was up to near 40,000 or something. And they said, no, the stocks, uh, you know, the government will support the banks and the banks own the stocks and they will always bail out the market. Well, they're still trying to figure out that market. You know, <laughs> We we could we could get into one of those things that lasts a long time, but it's, it's going to be different because we have the reserve currency. And if people really lose confidence, you know, a a military confrontation would change the picture entirely. I uh, I think it's uh, rather amazing, you know, uh, all the things that go on and the hatred now being built and the uh, propaganda against China. You know, if you don't hate China, you're not an American. And uh, they, of course, uh, aren't angels, but they're also thinking about, uh, you know, and they try to they try to uh, start using uh, the one uh, to price their oil in. So that's something like that. When that happens, but if there's a military conflict, uh, and that can be accidental, you know, it can be a false flag or who knows what. Uh, but uh, I just think that we're looking for trouble uh, when, uh, you know, in the midst of all this and all these problems we have at home, what we do is we show our strength that we go around the world to the South China Sea and put two aircraft carriers and thousands of other ships around. It's, uh, it, it makes no sense, but economically, I think it's very dangerous and something will crack. I don't, anybody, I don't think anybody knows exactly what the issue will be or when the happen but i think all libertarians and austrian economists re, uh, recognize you know a huge bubble out there the debt and the bond bubble and uh, that it, that it won't last but i think we live in a very dangerous time i don't think i don't think it's ever been like this uh, even throughout all of history how many how many times has the world had one currency with negative interest rates you know that's that's pretty astounding and and that's that's not going to go away or be resolved gracefully yeah it's funny that you mentioned the democrats and the republicans it's not as though one side is arguing to print and the other one isn't they've both kind of agreed they're both on that side they both you know it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to print the money it's just an argument because they need to argue about something right it's an argument about right. what they're going to spend it on <laughs> that, that's right it's uh it's power that divides them they uh, the big issues, I think there's only one party because it's probably the deep state that controls the big issue, uh, you know, like the Federal Reserve, like deficit spending, and like the principles of Keynesian economics. And, and that's that's agreed upon. But there's a uh, you'd say, well, why don't they cooperate a little bit with Trump if they're working together? No, it's over power, you know. And But even even under today's circumstances, when they have to get a bill passed, at least for symbol, symbolic reasons, you know, they suspend their argument. You know, when, when they were doing the impeachment trial, they would suspend it and go over and vote, you know, in order to get, get the budget passed. But now, now so much happens without even – uh, a, a a real vote, you know, uh, they they can. You don't have to worry about oh well, Congress isn't there. How do they do things? Well, executive orders. Uh, you know, the uh, the Congress can do whatever they want, and uh, also they uh, 
They think that uh, the judicial system, you know, it's there and it's corrupt. So uh, Congress, Congress, in a way, I came out of Washington by by believing that, generally speaking, the Congress is irrelevant. Uh, they get a lot of attention, a lot of noise, a lot of fighting goes on, but uh, they're irrelevant in changing things. And I think it's it's more, uh, you know, we can talk about the deep state, and, and that obviously is very real, but it also uh, reflects what the people want. Uh, this if if the people didn't want us to spend <clears throat> more money, the Congress wouldn't do it. But people are, aren't going to be willing to stand by and bite the bullet. And so that's why I think it's a hundred percent chance that there will not be a correction. It will be a continuation of what we're doing until it collapses, and uh, then the, that's when the liquidation will come. You know, with the uh, the destruction of the dollar because. All the mistakes, the malinvestment, all the debt has to be liquidated if you want to get back to any uh, sense of real economic growth. Yeah, and I agree with what you said earlier about the stock market really being the central bank's only mandate. I say that on my podcast all the time when people bring up central banking. They say, oh, it's jobs and it's price stability. I said they really only care about one thing, and that's making sure the optics of the stock market look okay because the, the average American, I think, conflates that with the economy. Uh, and so it gives the appearance that things are better than they actually are. Um, right. And just to go back to something we were just talking about a second ago, I'd be interested in your take on the moral hazard with printing three, four, five trillion dollars and then really giving what amounts to breadcrumbs to the average citizen. I think back to your comments uh, during 2008 uh, and really you were the person that put this in my head because back then you said – if it's about the people, why don't we just print $15,000 per person and redistribute the purchasing power that way? But again, that's not what's happening, Dr. Paul. We're printing 4 or $5 trillion, and a good majority of that, you know, 95 cents on the dollar of that, is going to corporations. And, and there's this pittance that's going to the average citizen, right? Yes, that's true. That's who benefits... I think uh, the PR has changed a bit, and the checks have been changed a bit, but I think what you just uh, restated is, is still true. It's going to be the banks and the big corporations and the special interests that benefit, but they sent out a lot of checks. You know, A lot of people got checks these last three or four months. The big thing is is they're about to stop, and they don't, uh, I, I think they're going to continue, but that is, that's small you know, compared to uh, what the big uh, corporations get. But in the last, in 08 and 09, uh, what you restated was even more true because they weren't pretending that they were going to send, uh, you, you know, an equivalent of 40, I think $48,000 a year income right. when they received these checks. It's a tremendous amount of money. Uh, but uh, they, they have no answer to this because politically they can't, they can't stop the process. Uh, and it'll be like the stock market. If they tr try to allow the stock market to correct and interest rates to go up, you know, the, the, everything everything collapses. And if they do that with uh, 
with what's happening with uh, trying to get enough money for people to to pay their rent, uh, you think there's violence on the streets t- today? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Cortez said that the reason why there's violence is people people have to steal their bread. It's you know, mainly <laughs> because they're hungry. <laughs> they have to steal bread, and I that's why that. there's a lot of violence. Which is um, which is obviously not true. Uh, the violence is there deliberately because they're trying to uh, really uh, overthrow the government, and they're doing uh, a better job in a negative sense, you know, more effective job than I had expected. Because there's so many people giving support, you know, to uh, cultural and economic Marxism. It's uh, it's really pretty scary. Yeah, it feels like the nation is kind of coming undone from the inside out dr paul like there's this there's this deep marxist thread running through the nation that you know it feels like we run the risk of kind of imploding from the inside out versus you know maybe like a conventional military attack from another superpower i mean we have real serious ideological issues in this country to worry about and most of the people i find that are fighting for this Marxism, I don't really think understand Marxism's history or really quite get what they're fighting for. They seem to think that there's this utopian kind of end game in their head that they can visualize, you know, where everybody get there's all this prosperity and everybody gets along, but nobody has to produce anything and nobody has to work, which, you know, is a fallacy, right? Right. And and they um, they they expect to be helped. They're naive on on doing this, but the uh, but the whole thing is is uh, they're superficial. Uh, the people are just out there in the streets. They're troublemakers, and some of them know exactly what they're doing. But the leaders, the leaders of Black uh, Lives Matter, that whole group, they they know exactly what they're doing, and they have they have a plan. And I think it blends in with uh, what they've done to our educational system, uh, you know, from the first grade on up. I mean, they've been indoctrinated. And then when you get into the universities and the professorships, uh, they they all preach this. And and that's why uh, it's, it's reflected in the Congress. So just uh, just lecturing Congress or sending different people to Congress and all, uh, that's uh, – uh, that's when I when I think about that. That's when I come up with the conclusion they're irrelevant uh, until people hear the message, and that's why what you're doing is important. You're talking to people and trying to get common sense into them. And there's a lot more out there that are thinking this way than we know about because uh, none of us know how many people uh, you know are reached this way because we have we we do have still some radio and we have uh, internet and we have uh, podcasts. So I. I'm keeping my fingers crossed to think, well, there's a lot of them out there because uh, uh, that's the only way that uh, things can change for the, for the, for the better is for more people to endorse it. But when you look, when you look at the, um, at the type of system that's going on in in these demonstrations, some of these interviews, uh, I watch them because they might go to a college campus and they'll ask these rather simple questions. Uh, What do you know about this Abraham Lincoln person? Do you know anything about him? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you've you've seen those uh, interviews, <laughs> and uh, it shows you how really bad they are. Yeah. But, 
But that's that's where the problem is. They don't they're not educated. They're, one time they were interviewing somebody like that was a school teacher, and the interviewer asked her, "Well, isn't this important that you know something about it?" Because she didn't know anything. He said, "Oh no, that's not it." That's, she 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 took the position that's not necessary. You don't have to know history to know what's going on right oh, now. God. And she says, "I've been taught to teach in my school." about what Black Lives Matters really are all about. And that was her old goal in life, was understanding Black Lives Matter and teaching students this. And I thought, this education, that's why I also have a homeschooling program. And uh, I think, matter of fact, right now we see more people looking for that as an alternative because that's the only thing that's going to happen. I just hope uh, when, as the dust settles here that there'll be a, a lot more uh, homeschooling and a lot more private schooling because the government schools are a disaster for, uh, for, for a long time now and for a lot of people. And I think having a good understanding of world history would really help put a lot of things in perspective for people that were born over the last couple of decades and just think that, you know, uh, they don't really have the perspective to understand how we got to where we are now, which I think is very necessary when you want to try to evaluate ideologies for moving forward. Um, There's been so many Austrian economic thinkers and libertarian thinkers, Dr. Paul, that I've talked to that always go back to your presidential runs back in the 2000s that say, well, that's really what woke me up. That was the thing. So to your comment before about, hey, you know, there are a lot of people like us out there, uh, the ones that haven't been banned from social media yet, but we, uh, a lot of us are out there because of you. I want to ask as a physician also, uh, just a couple of questions about the, the ongoing pandemic. You mentioned China earlier. The first question I want to ask you is, do you believe the infection numbers that come out of China? I I question them. I don't concentrate on this because I don't believe anything the government's ever tell me. <laughs> I don't believe I don't believe our government on a statistic. And that's I have I feel more responsible for dealing with that directly about how they report uh, cases and deaths and all these things. And there's no reason for me to say, well, we'll settle this. Let's just see what China says, and then, and then we'll believe them. Uh, but I don't think that the interpretation of what China is doing is, is, should come from our government because I think it's uh, very slanted. But I, so that's why I think sorting this out doesn't come by, uh, you know, one government versus another as much as people dealing with each other. And that's why I'm so much in favor of free trade and, uh, and travel between people so people can talk and, and communicate, uh, but uh, I think, yeah, yes, there's there's lots of things going on about uh, what China is doing and how bad they are. But uh, I uh, I think that uh, there's there's a lot of uh, misinformation when it comes to trying to figure out what's going on with coronavirus. And if you've listened to some of my programs, Daniel and I question it all the time on the statistics and what they're telling us. So there's misinformation. So China is quite capable, but. Uh, I have a little trouble with this thing. Well, the whole thing started with China. They created this virus, and all of a sudden, they were going to put it out there, and it's going to infect the whole world. And uh, and this this is our our plan. I don't think they're that efficient, you know, to do that. But uh, it's it's. Uh, 
it, it's something that uh, it, it deserves serious thought, but I think the solution is just concentrating on oneself and one's own country and uh, trying to do what's best and try to set an example for the rest of the world. As you've been able to kind of examine the data about the virus over the last three months, we last talked in, in late January, and the picture back then really was this was still just a blip on the radar, and it looked as though the case fatality rate coming out of China was between 2 and 4% at the time. And as the scope of the data that we've been able to uh, obtain has broadened, we have all this data not only from other countries, but we're doing this immense amount of testing now uh, in the United States. How, how, if at all, has your attitude about the virus changed over the last three months? And in terms of uh, the type of severity and alarm that the media has uh, created surrounding it, how much of that do you think is warranted? I think it's grossly exaggerated, but I also think that the virus is very serious and people can die from it. But we already have a lot of information in spite of the shortcomings of all the testing, because I think it's very clear that the people who do that have a weak immune system and the people that are elderly and in nursing homes, uh, they're very, very vulnerable. And also, I think that uh, young people, probably under 40, uh, the odds of them dying from this is so slim. And yet the hysteria has driven to the closing of all stores, uh, schools and stores and all this and everybody wearing a mask. Medically, I don't believe the masks are of any benefit whatsoever. And uh, and yet, uh, I I really do. Be, the danger of taking that position is people. Oh, you don't care. You don't care about people dying. Well, yeah, I, I do very much so. And maybe there wouldn't have been twenty or thirty six hundred people pushed back into a nursing home if they'd have used some common sense and instead of putting them more vulnerable. <laughs> so we do have information, but we we don't have a lot a lot of common sense, you know, on how how to use it. So this is. Uh, I think it's very serious because if you take it, because people lose loved ones, you know, from the disease, and it's that serious. So you can't belittle it. But uh, I think that there's so many other things. I, I think there's been a lot of lives. Someday somebody's going to figure out how many lives were lost as a, as a result of the lockdown. And uh, medically, we're hearing more and more stories. I personally have known in my own family and friends people who have been denied uh, medical care for months and diagnoses uh, uh, of cancer uh, were delayed as well as follow-up treatment was delayed and uh, closed. The hospitals were empty in the midst of this crisis because everybody was intimidated. I mean, right now, I wouldn't, I, if I had an emergency, the last thing I'd I'd have to try to really avoid going to the emergency room. Right. And uh, I, I have no plans right now for getting getting tested uh, because all they do is manipulate the statistics. And, and I just think there's pretty good evidence if a person's in good health, uh, it's probably no more dangerous. It can't be more dangerous than influenza. But you know that influenza, they don't even carry the statistics anymore because they throw them all together to, you know, enhance the panic. So people panic. So look how many people died. But, uh, you know, they count people who died from 
coronavirus and they never had a test right. and, and, and uh, well it, the the statistics are corrupted and they're not believable uh but unfortunately slowly the truth will come out but it's out there now it's available from good credible people about uh, the exaggeration of how serious this crisis is yeah i've, I've noted that when you turn on the mainstream media, you get the infection case numbers and you get the death toll, which seems to be, they seem to keep it on the screen in real time, like the stock tickers. And yeah. uh, what you don't get is you don't get the nuance behind those numbers. You don't get the number of people that have died from other ailments, but also tested positive for coronavirus. And so they're being, uh, they're being written down as a coronavirus death. You don't get the, the age groups of the people that died. You don't get the people with underlying conditions. And I think that that uh, nuance is all really important. You said medically you don't think masks are, uh, are uh, worthwhile. Can you just explain why you think that? Well, today, uh, Daniel and I talked about that, and there's uh, pretty good statistics to show that the accumulation of CO2 is tremendous. You know, the environmentalists, they, they don't like CO2, and they're doing everything possible uh, to uh, clean it up and not have it, and yet these masks uh, can cr tremendously increase your CO2 levels with the masks on. And people who have any compromise at all, if they have emphysema or asthma or anything like that and they have a mask on they're really jeopardizing their health but i don't think they save anybody's life i wore a mask under certain circumstances and in, in medicine you know when you're doing surgery and there's open wounds and things like that I, but i see that as common sense rather than everybody i i just get so disgusted with seeing thousands and thousands of people wearing masks and uh they <laughs> They don't even know what they're doing. They're just terrified by the propaganda. Uh, so I don't think I don't think uh, anybody's life is saved by that. I think it's like a rubber stamp that you are going to obey the state. I think the only thing they should do about a mask when it's used massively like this is uh, have everybody put a six 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 on it and say that's this is the reason I have to wear this mask. But no, they'll get rid of the mask by that time. By that time, they're going to have a vaccine that's going to have all our information they ever wanted to have if, if uh, we allow Bill Gates to do what they want and uh, Fauci. Uh, because they're they're up to no good. What do you mean they they're up to no good? What do you think? Well, I I think uh, they're I think they're part of the plan to uh, uh, you know terrorize the people. And this is this is to discipline the people to get the people to listen uh, and not question. If the government tells you, you see, like you mentioned, they see these headlines. This scares you, and this, and people are terrified. And and it's uh, it's pretty broad. I'm I'm amazed at that. But I think they they have a plan to uh, really make sure that people are very very disciplined. It's sort of like a continuation of the TSA. You know, we had a terrorist attack that, uh, you know, deserved attention. But uh, since that time, we've been you've been we, we've been vulnerable to the probing and everything else by government agents, and they've never done any good since then. Right. And yet, we know that we have to if we're going to travel, we're going to do exactly what they say. Right now, they're working on the plan on how they're going to permit us to get back on airplanes again and go out in the open right. as long as you obey. And that is the part I think is the biggest threat to us right now. You know, we take an oath to protect. Our, our, our country against all enemies.
enemies, foreign and domestic. And I think you already mentioned, it looks like most of our enemies, from my viewpoint, are domestic. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with you. All right, Dr. Paul, my last question. Thank you again for being generous with your time. You are... Uh, I know you're a Washington outsider, but you're also somewhat of a Washington insider, having spent your career in in politics. Uh, are you hearing any scuttlebutt about this Jelaine Maxwell arrest? Or do you have any uh, insight into this story about Maxwell and Epstein? Uh, anything involving no. politicians that the, that the average person doesn't have? I, I wouldn't have much information on that, probably because I don't know where to go for you know, good information. And quite frankly, it it's so disgusting. I just can't, you know, get into it. I see that as a, as a moral failure of a significant, you know, smaller group where when we're talking about coronaviruses and wars and China, all these things, it's uh, in the Federal Reserve, it's much bigger. But that is so disgusting that I really, I, I don't have any additional information for you. So... I, was, I just try to keep up what the people are saying about it. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak to me and to speak to my listeners, many of whom I know uh, are in the libertarian mindset, myself included, uh, specifically because uh, you were out there and you were, uh, you've were you been out there for decades and, uh, and keeping your voice up. So we, we appreciate it. And on behalf of uh, all of them, thank you so much and uh, God bless. Thank you very much, Chris. Nice being with you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That was the one, the only Dr. Ron Paul, the man himself. Very happy to squeeze him in on a Tuesday and get his thoughts on the state of the world as it is today. All right, fools. I got a lot of great stuff coming up over the next couple of days. Thank you guys so much for spending a half hour with me today. Again, to my patrons, I appreciate your support. And I'll be back uh, in a day or two. I'm doing John Nigerian's show tomorrow. And then Thursday, I have uh, a guest on one of my favorite, absolute favorite Twitter accounts to follow. Probably not going to be what you guys think it is. But uh, I'll check back in with you on Thursday. All right, fools. Peace. <laughs>